Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The people who sued the state over the first round of gerrymandered maps have made their filings in the latest round of gerrymandered maps, but we really don't know what's in them yet because they weren't showing up on the court website last night. We won't be talking about that today, maybe tomorrow. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and because it's Wednesday, chief political writer Seth Richardson. It's a Wednesday. Yay! Yay. Hump day! (laughs) Sunny Wednesday. Sunny cold Wednesday. It was snowing here this morning. I don't know about about where you are. There was... Yeah, no sun. It's going to be cold, though. Is today the day it goes below zero? Tonight, yeah. Yeah, boy, that's... All right, let's get going. Why is NASCAR arguing before the Ohio Supreme Court that it should not have to pay more than a half million dollars in back taxes it owes the state? Lisa, I love this process. I want to employ this everywhere I play taxes. <laughs> well, it, it it all it's all about the commercial activity tax that was established here in Ohio in 2005. So they tax just over a quarter percentage point on most Ohio businesses uh, or, or that do business in Ohio. You don't have to be in Ohio to get this tax. Um, so what happened was is that the state claims that NASCAR owes the state $549,000 in taxes and penalties that came out of a 2012 audit by the Ohio Tax Commissioner. And that ruling was upheld by the state tax appeals board as well. And so this concerns some races that were broadcast in Ohio from July 2005 to December 2010 on Fox, Speed Channel, and and other broadcast outlets. But, uh, you know, they say, the state says, look, you know, The NASCAR's intellectual property is subject to taxation. It's not a tax on transactions. But NASCAR, as you might imagine, has their own opinion on it. They say that this application of this tax is unconstitutional and unworkable, and they have asked the Ohio Supreme Court to rule on this. So we'll see what comes out of this. They also say it. Go ahead. I'm I'm having a little hard time understanding this one. I mean, does this mean like we're posthumously billing the Lucy show because they air reruns in Ohio. Does every television program that airs in Ohio get billed? I, I, I just, that seems odd to me that every, I mean, how many channels do you have on cable where stuff is coming through? Does every one of them get billed? Why, why NASCAR? I, I don't understand. And you know, NASCAR says actually they probably are subject to taxation for seven events in Ohio. So I, you know, they're agreeing That's to different part of though, it. because yeah, cause it's in the state. Yeah. They're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, just the fact that you're watching something I, that that throws me. I mean, are they billing Jacques Cousteau for reruns of his shows on the National Geographic channel? Uh, I'm I'm not quite sure I understand what's going uh, on here. I guess we should dig, dig into, into it. it yeah, because I didn't understand the tax either. But the Ohio Chamber of Commerce is on NASCAR's side. They filed a friend of the court brief supporting NASCAR, and they said if the ruling is upheld, then the penalty should be dropped. So, yeah, it's a it's an odd one. You're listening to today in Ohio. 
Why does Nina Turner think she has a shot at defeating Chantel Brown in the coming rematch in the Democratic primary for U.S. Congress in Cleveland? Seth, in the background of this question is the idea that we don't even know where the district lines are going to be drawn, <laughs> and yet we already have them ready to go at it. That is true. I mean, I think in, uh, you know, especially in Nina Turner's case, I think she has a general idea of, uh, you know, she lives in Cleveland. So, um, you know, the the district will contain Cleveland. Um, so she kind of has that. I mean, I guess it's a little more questionable with Chantel Brown, but realistically, it's probably going to include Warrensville Heights as well. Um, so, you know, why, I, this, this has kind of been an open secret for a while, really, since I guess maybe the day after the primary that uh, she was thinking about running again or wanted to run again. Um, and, you know, in talking with her, it's, you know, for multiple reasons, she said the the things she was running on, you know, during the special election t- um, were, you know, still relevant, right? Those things hadn't been solved and she still believed in it. But then there's also this sort of undercurrent of how the special election went, right, where you had a very low turnout. You had, um, you know, a lot of outside money come in, millions of dollars of outside money coming in and attacking her. And you really had this kind of nationalization like laid into the race um, that that sort of kind of tilted it one way or another. So I think when you look at all of those things and, you know, new district lines, it's going to be a more Cleveland centric district, which is where she ran best. Uh, she's going to be able to raise money. We know she's going to be able to raise money. And I, I think kind of a sour taste that's in her mouth from uh last time that those are probably the driving factors well she did make mistakes last time she said some really dumb stuff but the big factor we found out at the end of it all was the jewish vote there was Mm. a lot of money spent arguing that she'd become part of the squad and be anti-israel which really did drive out jewish voters to oppose that so the lines if they include the eastern cleveland suburbs I would think that would still apply. I mean, she still would have to overcome that. Now, she didn't do anything to overcome that. She didn't go out and say, look, that, that's ridiculous. I'm not anti-Semitic. People know me. She, she didn't push back on that, that line that was out there, but a lot of money was spent to drive it. Um, the other thing is Chantel Brown is the incumbent now. Doesn't that count mm. for something? Oh, absolutely. It counts for something because the special election left a lot of Democrats in Northeast Ohio really exhausted. It was really divisive. I think it's, it still kind of is to this day. Um, there, there's some of that. And let's not forget that Chantel Brown is also the chair of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. But you add that on top of a really contentious mayor's race. And 2021 was a super kind of like a, a pretty divisive year, all things considered, for the Democratic Party in Cuyahoga County. And I think you're, you've already seen some of the people who supported um, Nina Turner last time around. They came out and endorsed Chantel Brown in the run-up to the general election of last year. Now, people can say, oh, well, yeah, that's when she was facing a Republican. But I think what that really indicates is they're saying, hey, Nina, don't run. We don't want this again. You know, we're not, we're not necessarily on board this time. We're not geared up for a primary fight. Then you have the Washington side of things, the national side of things, where – you know, Chantel Brown had a lot of um, PAC money that came in, outside spending that came in. This time, she's going to have the full force of, like, she was criticized as being the quote-unquote Democratic establishment last time, right? The Cuyahoga County 
Democratic Party was a non-factor in this race last time around. They didn't meet. They, they did nothing. They were generally split on the matter. But now Chantel Brown is going to have the backing of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. She's probably going to have the backing of the DNC. And on top of that, Joe Biden, the president, is going to, you know, he's already endorsed her in the general last year. And he's going to be able to make a full-throated endorsement for an incumbent without seeming like he's weighing into an open congressional seat. So, yeah, she'll have a lot of I, – I, I think she's got – if I'm handicapping it right now – you know, I think you always give incumbents probably the edge here. But that said, I mean, you know, Nina is a well-known national figure and the lines in theory could be a little bit better. So maybe, why not? Not to mention voter turnout is probably going to be higher. Well, if the eastern suburbs are not included in the district, I think she has a much better shot. But if if you get mostly Cleveland and its suburbs in that district, I think she's going to have a very well, hard time. The, the real estate is kind of tough when you just look at really any way you do it. Cause you look at the district last time and it had Cleveland generally, um, you know, more of the Eastern portion of Cleveland, like it's still on the West side, but you didn't have some of the more uh, traditionally kind of conservative parts of Cleveland, the, you know, West park areas, that kind of thing. Um, but the other big factor for Nina Turner is okay, but you're taking out Akron as well where, you know, Nina ran pretty well. So you're taking that out. And then you look at like where you're going to add. Do you add, you know, okay, a Lakewood or something like that is you you tend to think that that probably is more friendly to Nina, you know, Nina Turner. But then you look at whatever they're going to redraw after those maps were, uh, you know, overturned by the court and what happens when they put Parma, a much more conservative Democratic kind of area right. in there. So right. the real estate is very difficult. I think even if it is a Cleveland centric seat, the, the, the biggest question is going to be kind of the turnout factor where you're not running in a special election and Cleveland is going to be a majority of the district and she is well known in Cleveland. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. One day after reporter Jeremy Pelzer noted all of the people who supported the corrupt House Bill 6 who were on a committee to pick the new utilities regulator, two are gone. Who are they and who replaced them, Laura? And Jeremy is saying that he doesn't believe his story caused this. I'm I'm looking at the timing and saying, oh, it might have. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it just happened to be one day later that Mike DeWine decides maybe that wasn't the best idea to have him on the uh, board. I, I'm just not really believing that. So Michael Corrin, who lobbied for First Energy for years while ser serving as a nominating council chair for the PUCO, he's going to be removed uh, for GOP political strategist and HB6 opponent, Michael Hartley. Uh, Corrin gave his resignation, or sorry, HB6 opponent Michael Hartley is also going to be removed. So Corrin's going to be replaced by Cheryl Burchard. She's the lobbying director for Ohio Telecom Association. And Hartley's going to be replaced by Stuart Young, who's also an opponent of HB6. So we're swapping one for another there. DeWine spokesman Dan Pierney said, Tierney said both personnel changes have been in the works for some time. Again, I'm not completely buying that. No, maybe they were in the works for for some time, but the fact that they actually put them into effect the day after Jeremy Pelzer reported that shocking fact that a bunch of people that supported a corrupt bill were still there. Right, he didn't tell that to Jeremy on Monday when Jeremy was reporting yeah. the story. Yeah, so way to go, Jeremy. That's watchdog journalism. That's what we do here. And you see the results of having yeah. a strong media. And so that means that these people will be in place to appoint the next person because that's coming. That deadline is coming up right away, I believe. And good for Mike DeWine for for making that happen. We were all over him for not changing it out. So good that he did it. It's today in Ohio.
Is University Hospitals finally going to compel its workers to get vaccinated almost a year after the coronavirus vaccines became widely available? Lisa, they're not doing it by choice. No, they're not. They're having to meet a federal mandate. Now, people may be confused because, you know, the mandate for large employers has been walked back. But Healthcare facilities have to meet this federal mandate by March 15th. So UH, who has been dragging their feet all along and not mandating uh, vaccination in their employees, a lot of a lot of it is claims that they were going to lose employees because of that. But now they have to be fully vaccinated by March 15th, which means they should probably get their first shot by the 14th of February to get that 21-day window. This includes volunteers, caregivers, students, residents, anybody who has direct patient interaction. And employees were informed about this on the, the 18th of January. So they've had a, you know, a week or so to think about it. Now, uh, Cleveland Clinic, on the other hand, they're saying that they have a deadline of February 28th for their employees to complete the vaccination regimen. And anybody who fails to comply will be put on unpaid leave at the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, and we've talked about all the people we've heard from over the past year who went into the hospital for procedures and were shocked to find out that people that were treating them didn't get vaccinated. It just, it seems like such an anomaly over at Metro Health. They put that edict in a long time ago. They had some staff members leave, but they managed to do business. For some reason, UH and the clinic just refused to do it, which is surprising because they're run by guys who really do seem to care about public health. Good to see that they're going to obey the government order. It's today in Ohio. What are we expecting to happen when the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party gets together virtually today to talk about the primary endorsements, including in the race, I guess race, for county executive? Seth Richardson, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think two weeks ago, I would have given you maybe a different expectation where I, th- I think we could have seen a kind of more knockdown drag out fight going on between uh, Chris Ronane and Brad Sellers. But obviously, with the implosion of Brad Sellers' campaign and uh, nobody really being able to mount any other kind of challenge in the short amount of time since that happened, I, th- I think you should actually see some. A relatively smooth sailing for Chris Ronane to get the endorsement for that, which is big, you know, big for him because, uh, you know, in theory, I guess you could still have somebody else jump in the race. But, um, you know, it, it seems pretty unlikely if, you know, the party is going to have an endorsed candidate. I think everybody is mostly going to fall in line there. Well, and remember, the only reason Brad Sellers dropped out is because of reporting by our reporter, Caitlin Durbin, who found that he had given himself a tax abatement that was very lucrative and a document attesting to the fact that he had no arrearages and taxes was proven false by the record, which means that he may have violated Ohio law. So he had a dropout. There were a lot of people kind of strong arming Democratic committee members to get them to support sellers. So they kind of had egg on their face when that all collapsed. You're right. I don't think they could come up with another candidate. I'm not sure why there was the opposition to Chris Ronane other than that he supported Justin Bibb and the machinery of Cuyahoga County, the Parma machine and such, supported Kevin Kelly. And I guess they wanted to punish Chris Ronane for not falling in line. Well, I, I think you kind of answered it there, right? There's still this, there's a lot of that old school kind of machine mentality in the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. 
And I think that some people probably saw, you know, one Chris Ronan getting into the race, right, when he hasn't necessarily been as involved in the Democratic Party since, you know, leaving off, uh, leaving off. He's been at, he was at university uh, circle for what, like a decade, right? 16 uh, years. 16 years. Yeah. So having not, um, there's the whole paid your dues mentality that goes into politics sometime, right? Quote unquote, paying your dues. It's the same reason that you did see a lot of people coming out against Justin Bibb or whoever. It, it, it's not exclusive to that race. It happens all the time. And I think there's some of that lingering. Plus, like you said, um, him coming out in support of Justin Bibb, I think probably rubbed some people the wrong way um, just because of how many different factions of the party really had an interest in the mayoral race and then having this kind of real true outsider to the party winning it and having people who were supposed to be uh you know good democrats so to speak coming in coming out and backing him and whatnot so yeah i think that definitely played a part do you expect any decision in this meeting about the racing congress that we talked about earlier um, well, incumbents generally get the endorsement no matter what. It's it's really rare that um, the party does not endorse incumbents. And I mean, with Chantel Brown being the incumbent, I mean, she's easily got the inside track to that. So that, I, I don't I don't think there's any threat of that happening. She she very well might. It, it might be a case where they call it kind of out of a surprise because hey, now you do have Nina Turner in the race. Um, but, you know, I guess there there does exist a possible scenario where there's no endorsement, which would, you know, I'd be a little embarrassing. But I, I, I expect that uh, the party will get behind Chantel Brown. And you'll be covering this so people will be able to read what happened on com and eventually the Plain Dealer. Good. It's today in Ohio. The battle over the name of Cleveland Marshall College of Law has taken a new turn with Cleveland City Council now weighing in. Laura, how so? Well, City Council on Monday unanimously passed a resolution urging the university to remove the name since it belonged to a slaveholder. That's U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. And as far as I know, there's no tie for him to Cleveland. But Councilman Kevin Conwell is the one championing this resolution. He said keeping the name amounts to a black eye and is tantamount to basically flying a Confederate flag. So the resolution comes as these law school students are ramping up the efforts to push the Board of Trustees to take action against the name. They, The Students Against Marshall was formed in November. They're frustrated with what they see as the school dragging its feet and because they've been considering this name change since mid 2020, but there's no timeline. And this group wants it gone by commencement, so they don't have that name on their diploma. The um, there There's some pushback, though, from alumni, right? Yeah, I believe so. And, and there's a lot of tradition that they point to that people say it's been there for a long time. But like I said, there's no real Cleveland tie to it. And it, it's a clunky name, Cleveland hyphen Marshall College of Law. I feel like we could come up with something way better. Yeah, way better. It's a dumb name. None of you are probably been around long enough to remember when Case Western Reserve University decided to change its name to Case, uh, leaving out the Western Reserve University part. And it created this massive uproar among alumni, so much so that they had to reverse it. The alumni well, were very powerful. That's because there was the Case Institute of Technology and then there was Western Reserve University. So by like taking that Western Reserve off, it was like denying half of the history of the, the college. So I can see that a little bit more. Um, and I guess right. this you weren't you weren't dealing with 
yeah, you weren't dealing with an issue of racism. I mean, Kevin no. Conwell's right. Why would you have a Cleveland college named for somebody who's a slaveholder and with a clunky name? Change it to something good. And, you know, the students are the ones that, that represent it when they leave. You want them to be proud of their school, not ashamed of what their degree says. Right. Uh, I don't I don't know that we've seen a list of alternatives, but I feel like if we opened it up on Cleveland.com, we could get a whole lot of like really great Clevelanders with backgrounds in law that you'd be proud to put on your diploma. Well, I was I was actually I actually just opened the page of um, alumni for the law school, and it is kind of weird that they haven't considered some of these people to be on the name and you know named for it instead you've got all kinds of local leaders who went to the Cleveland Marshall College of Law that you know you think would make sense instead of having someone with no real ties to uh, Cleveland being on there you can name it for Frank Jackson he <laughs> went there and he just left after the longest serving mayor you can yeah. name it for any number of both of the of, Stokes went there you've got yeah, you, you know, can name it right you can leaders. name it for Lou Stokes and Carl Stokes the Sto- I mean there's yeah, there's so many good ways to go with this that it would be much better. Laura, has the uh, president of CSU, Harlan Sands, said anything public on this? I haven't seen anything that he said publicly. So I, I feel like with the pressure mounting, there's going to have to be a public statement coming out. You, know, you can't just say, well, we're studying it. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. There's not a lot of time before commencement. It's today in Ohio. What is the surprisingly high income threshold for people to get free tax preparation services this year in Northeast Ohio? Lisa, this is a good news story, and I don't think most people realize just how much money they can make and still get help with their tax preparation. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. And I actually, of course, I'm a pensioner. My money comes from out of state, but I think I fall under this cap. So any Cuyahoga County resident that makes $58,000 a year or less is eligible for this free tax service. It's There are going to be three what they call super refund tax events in the area. They're being hosted by the Cuyahoga Earned Income Credit uh, Coalition. And, uh, you know, they, they're having three events. I'll, I'll list the the list of locations in a minute, but appointments are required. You can go to refundohio.org or dial 211 to schedule. Uh, this is being made possible by the coalition, also by PNC Bank, Key Bank, Third Federal Bank, and the CHN Housing Partners working together. So yeah, this is pretty cool. And some people will be eligible for up to $6,600 in refunds. So the first one is going to be this Friday at the PNC Fairfax Connection at 82 229 Carnegie from 10 to 2. Number two is at St. Ignatius High Schools in their raid dining hall on West 30th, and that's from 9 to 2. And then the last one is February 12th at Central Catholic High School at 6550 Baxter Avenue from 9 to 2. So yeah, if you're making 58000 or less, you need to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, it's a, it's a good program. Helps a lot of people out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are some Democratic lawmakers seeking in the request for audits of the state commissions that have been running three Ohio school districts that are in financial distress? Seth, two of these are in Northeast Ohio. What do the Democrats want to know? Uh, yeah, well, all three are. Uh, one of them is in Lorraine. One of them is in Youngstown. One of them is in East Cleveland. And the three the, the three lawmakers who are asking for the audits are really just asking for kind of basic financial information to see how the money is being spent and, you know, all like basically where the money is going, because right now these 
districts, these these academic distress commissions don't have to, uh, you know, make that publicly available, which seems like a um, it's a very strange setup, given that it's supposed to be government money and how all that is going on. The this is something that that has been a question from the beginning. When you have some a school district in financial distress, the state takes it over, but the state doesn't bring any money to the equation. This isn't a way to help poverty stricken districts. It just takes away their control. And so you no longer have the local people spending money. You have the state spending the money. I, I, I'm kind of surprised to find that there's been no accountability for this. Do we suspect that we'll, we, we will see the audit that is requested? I think there's a good chance you could you could see an audit for that because why not, right? I mean, part of you know the the auditor's job is they want to go out and hey make sure everything is spending right now. The the only sort of caveat there is maybe this maybe it's kept secret for some reason that I just don't know um, that it, that is in the law for some reason. So maybe that hinders it um, in some sort. But you you would think that it wouldn't be too terribly difficult for the state to basically say, hey, we, the state, want to show how the state is spending money. Um, so I, I, I would expect, I, I guess I don't know why there would be any opposition to it, is the thing. It doesn't seem like something that there should be opposition to, because if you have a school board that is spending money, you want to know how that board is spending money. I don't. I think everybody would think that an arrangement where you know, a school board is not showing their finances is a weird arrangement. So... And it's still local money. It's the local yeah. taxpayers. They deserve to know. This is further evidence of just what a silly plan it was for the takeover because it didn't really provide a solution. It just put control into the hands of somebody else faced with the same problems and no better real success in fixing things. It's Today in Ohio. We talked a lot about snow on Tuesday, and one way to stop those snow stories is to shut down the lake effect snow machine. Laura, is that close to happening? Not quite, but we're getting there. Um, it was about 40% yesterday, and I bet you we're up a Wait, couple of- what was 40%? Of... Sorry, it's about 40%. That. Lake Lake Erie was about 40% covered in ice yesterday on Tuesday, and that's way up from 0% on New Year's Day, and I bet you we've climbed up a little bit. It's well above what it was this time last year, still below the long-term average. I actually ran this morning. It was like five degrees. I don't know. But from as far as I could see, <laughs> it was pretty frozen. Not to the point that I'm about to step onto it right now. I know that last the, the height of the, fr the freeze comes in late February, usually, in Lake Erie. And last year, I probably remember seeing all the social media photos of people walking out on the lake and then all the warnings that we shouldn't <laughs> be walking out on the lake. But... Uh, this year already, there are ice shanties set up in Putin Bay area, which is one of the first places to freeze and kind of lock in because there's islands all around there. Well, when you get down to the temperature we're going to see tonight, where you're going below zero, that freezing happens a lot more quickly than it than it would have in the beginning part of the month. Mm -hmm. So, and then once the lake is frozen over, the 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 theory is that the, there's no moisture to pull up from the lake by Correct. any kind of warm system to dump on my house in Cleveland Heights. So <laughs> because because what happens is the really cold air above the lake pulls up the relatively warmer 
air and the and the moisture from the lake and then once it hits the land yeah that's when it drops and the reason the lake effect is on the east side is just the way the curve of the lake works the lake effect is the same reason we get so many gloomy days in cleveland in in the late fall and so actually we should get more sunshine with the lake frozen over last year the um, the predicted maximum ice coverage this year is about 70 percent we got up to 85 percent the last time we were completely covered with ice in lake erie was 1996 mm -hmm. but because it is the shallowest great lake it is the one that freezes first fastest and most well let's hope it freezes quickly because i'm tired of shoveling as <laughs> i suspect we all are <laughs> And you should have that... seen the dinosaur in my neighborhood uh, yesterday. That was fun to watch. I, I really feel like we're going to see a trend of of creatures popping up and making people <laughs> smile with their shovels. Yeah, it's the zombie apocalypse. It's today in Ohio. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Seth. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Thursday with another discussion of the news of Northeast Ohio and statewide.